Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 243 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is George Saunders. He's the author of the short story collections Civil War Lands and Bad Decline, Pastoralia, In Persuasion Nation, and Tenth of December as well as the novellas The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp and The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil. He also writes nonfiction essays for magazines such as GQ and The New Yorker, and many of those essays have been collected in his book The Braindead Megaphone. He teaches creative writing at Syracuse University, and has won many awards for his writing, including the National Book Award, the World Fantasy Award, and a MacArthur Fellowship. And we'll be speaking with him today about his first novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. And now, here's our interview with George Saunders. All right, so we're here with George Saunders. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Okay, so I've heard you say that you were that you initially aspired to be a short story writer, which I think is kind of unusual. So I was just curious, what why did you want to be a short story writer specifically? Well, you know, I was uh, I went to engineering school at the School of Mines in Colorado. So my my training was in geophysics, and uh, I had sort of a side you know passion for reading and writing, but I didn't I, I didn't really know much about it. And uh, really, I think it was just because the first couple of books that rang my bell were uh, short story collections like Hemingway's In Our Time. And then uh, I got this little collection of de Maupassant stories, like in a 1920 edition or something. And I remember, you know, being out at a, a river up there in Colorado reading it and just thinking it would be so cool to make something that was really short and really powerful like that. So we just kind of and then when I went to grad school uh, at Syracuse this was sort of in the heyday of Raymond Carver and Tobias Wolf. And uh, so those writers were really strong and it was kind of like just a, a, a short story Renaissance. So it just seemed to me like a beautiful form. And also, you know, I was kind of coming from, uh, I guess a sort of a, I guess broadly speaking, a working class background and engineering background. So it seemed like it would be uh, somehow easier to master that form than it would be a novel, which turned out to not be true. But it, it seemed like a small enough thing you could sort of carve it out and master it. Right. And you were actually studying with Tobias Wolf at Syracuse, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I met in that program. We we were uh, you know, subject to the the legendary romantic Syracuse ambiance and we got engaged in three <laughs> weeks while we were to, while we were Tobias' students. Well, so did you so he did he sort of fill you in on how hard it is to make a career writing short stories? No, I mean, actually, the opposite. I, I looked at him and I just, I, I just admired him so much. And he seemed to have a perfect life. You know, he was, he would teach, and he was, he's just a really wonderful guy. And uh, then, you know, every so often he'd drop a story, and, and you'd read it, and you're like, oh my god, this has so many levels, and it's such a, you know, beautiful work of art. And for me, the big, the big moment was to go, wait a minute, that man over there who's normal and beyond normal, he's just, just a dear person, uh, funny, uh, you know, like encouraging presence, that he made that complicated work of art was a big deal for me because I think before that I'd, I'd labored a little bit under the assumption that you had to be a freak to write well. You know, you had to be like out of control or dysfunctional. So for me, it was actually kind of reassuring. I looked at his life like, man, if I could get some version of that, it'd be, you know, but, but it was really, you know, the, um, the thing was, you, you, uh, it was like you were seeing a craftsman, somebody who was really dedicated in a certain lineage and was clearly taking so much pleasure in it. And, uh, that it, it, it was just it looked like a great a great way to live to me. Well, right. And sort of speaking of being normal in writing, you kind of got a normal day job, right? And did your early writing while working that job? Yeah, that's right. I got out of grad school, and then I was uh, you know I had the engineering degree that had sort of worn out. I'd used it years before and been um, in the oil fields in Asia, and then kind of you know let it. I was traveling around and doing a kind of a Kerouac thing. Went to grad school, so I was able to get a tech writing job with first a pharmaceutical company and then a, uh, an environmental engineering company. So I just worked at that environmental job for, God, I think about six or seven years while I wrote my first book. Yeah. So it was good, you know, it's good to have a little bit of technical uh, knowledge so that you could actually get paid. <laughs> well, it's funny because I've heard you say that you would have like uh, your computer set up to where you would switch back and forth between your work and your <laughs> writing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the old days, you know, they gave us some big, big clunky, uh, you know, uh, PCs and it had, and at that time, WordPerfect was the kind of, you know, the dominant software. So we do, we shift F3. I still remember the command to go back and forth between files. So, you know, the trick was you'd put, I'd get my story up there and start working on it. 
And then when somebody walked in, you'd hit shift F3 to bring up your work document. And I sort of figured out the maximum or the optimal location for the desk so that it took the most steps to get behind me. <laughs> you know, so a little, it was a little diabolical, but, but mostly, I mean, I, I, we were billing hours, you know, so, uh, you know, you, I, I would get everything done that I needed to and then steal 15 or 20 minutes and ride on the bus or right at night. And so it was, it was kind of a sweet time. It was very, um, you know, the opposite of leisurely writing. You had to really, if you were going to seize a couple of minutes, you had to really make it count, which turned out to be, uh, ideal for my the way that my mind works. And it's funny too because you said that if someone gave you a hard time at work, you would take your revenge by uh, writing more. Yeah, I, I would say that you just gave me a, a grant for the arts. You know, because <laughs> sometimes, like I, that, I was I say tech writer, and I was doing a lot of editing actually. And uh, but sometimes, you know, you would get somebody would say, "I need a cover for the Kodak document," you know, and you're like, "Uh, yeah, that's an hour," you know, and really it was just centering some text, you know, so you could kind of build in a little bit of cushion uh, to to get some work done. There, you know, it was. I mean, I never ripped anybody off, but there was a lot. It, it, especially as I started to publish, there was a lot of a little more policing by certain people. So you had to kind of, you know. But there also had I had really good friends who I was working with who understood and would be like. Um, you know, they they give me a little extra time to do a, a, a job so I could kind of, you know, pad it out with writing. Well, you mentioned that you started selling stories, right? So how did that how did those first couple of fiction sales come about? Well, let's see, I, I think uh, I had published way before this. I had published two or three stories and then I kind of went dry for about five years. So um, I I just started sending them out. I had, I had a ritual where every Friday afternoon at about three, I'd walk down to this post office or mailbox and just drop, you know, this was in the old days and just drop stuff in the mail. And I had a little nerdy chart, you know, like, uh, the magazine names on one, uh, and, and then the, the date of send out on the other and the response. So it was kind of a, like a little, uh, half an hour indulgence in the business side where I just very methodically send stuff out. And uh, I had a couple of smaller magazines take things, which is great. And then I got a, um, I think what it was is I got a letter from the New Yorker. I'd gotten two really nice rejections from them, which, you know, in the hierarchy of, <laughs> of writing, a nice rejection is one where they actually give you a name or, you know, there's a couple lines of praise or something. So I had that. And then on my third try, uh, I got this really almost maddening call. It said, we're, we're very close to taking this story, but we're not sure yet. We're changing editors. Uh, and so we'll let you know. Uh, so that was cool, but it was not, you know, it wasn't the thing. So I had then right about that time, I got assigned to go up to Fort Drum in upstate New York, and we had to do some uh, groundwater sampling. And uh, first of all, I didn't want to go because we had our daughters who were little, and I just, just did, had no desire to be away from home. It was like a 10-day or two-week thing. So, and also we were staying at a microtel up there, which is just, you know, really tiny little rooms. And and then the job was to go out in, in hip waders or whatever and collect groundwater samples. And I was kind of like the packing guy who would put the labels on. So it was, it was really uh, kind of tedious. And so, but every night I'd run back to the hotel, any messages? No messages. <laughs> and then one night there was one and it was kind of garbled. It was like, uh, you know, New York says, you know, says yes or yes, probably, or something like that. So uh, me and the guy I was working with went on and had a big, big drunk. But, uh, yeah, so that was the first, it was the, the New Yorker was in 92 and, uh, that kind of changed everything. You know, after that, you, the doors were a little wider open and, um, then the book came out of that about, but still about four years later, even after that, you know, so it was, it was a grind. Well, right. And a lot of the stories in that first collection, Civil Warlands and Bad Decline have kind of science fictional or dystopian elements to them. Were you always interested in that kind of stuff or did that interest start at a certain point? Yeah, that's a, I, that's a good question. I think I was interested in as a person and as a like a you know an absorber of pop culture. So like Star Wars, you know, landed big on me, and uh, uh, but somehow I, I had a kind of a you know a, a wall up between what I considered serious literature and that sci-fi stuff that I kind of loved in my everyday life. You know, just that kind of old maybe it was a bit of a working class idea that literature was way too you know, holy for any of that stuff to come. And that was for fun. That was the stuff that you really love, but it didn't belong in your writing. Uh, and then I had kind of, right about the time that we're discussing, I had this kind of breakthrough where, uh, you know, kind of the realization that if you're going to compel a reader to keep reading, you got to kind of use what's best in you and what's most joyful and genuine. Uh, whereas before I've been kind of keeping a lot of stuff out, I've been keeping humor out, been keeping dirty jokes out, you know, keeping uh, even, 
you know, I'm a fast talker uh, and a fast reader. I've been keeping that out, trying to be very refined, keeping my class origins out and keeping the sci-fi stuff out. Um, and then when I, when I took that wall down, suddenly I was like, Oh God, now I know how to proceed. You know, I know how to tell a story if I'm allowed to be a little strange. And, uh, and actually that New Yorker story was, uh, it was called offloading for Mrs. Schwartz. And it was just triggered by something I'd read in the paper that day about maybe the first mention I'd ever seen of, uh, what we now know as virtual reality, you know, kind of a, uh, so I just kind of took that as something to goof around with. And, uh, and weirdly I found as I think a lot of people who write sci-fi stuff is that I could get more genuine emotional power in that realm than if I was being strictly realist. Uh, and then it also let in, let in everything else, the, the fun and the jokes and the, you know, the scatology and all that. But I think part of that is that, you know, you're, um, if you're, if your goal, as I would say, mine is, is to be emotionally communicative. It might be that you have to go off out of the plane of the literal to get there. You know, that, in other words, the, at that time, there, I mean, there's a lot of realism, you know, just sort of straightforward realism. And I never found that that was that I couldn't get to my emotionally deep places in that mode. I, I don't actually know why, but I think that's something that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about the move from realism or something to sci-fi or dystopian is you, you don't do it to be cute or, or to be hip. You do it because the other mode doesn't satisfy your emotional uh, desire to make, you know, really powerful art. Right. I saw that expressed really well recently, I thought, where somebody s said that, for example, getting dumped doesn't feel like getting dumped. It feels like the world just blew up or something. That's right. Exactly. And so if you show two people, you know, a girl saying, hey, you know, Rodney, we're over and he starts crying, that doesn't actually convey the emotional, the, the actual, I mean, the real realistic emotional moment is something much more profound. So, so then you get into this interesting space where you, you have to actually alter the framework. You know, the whole, the whole kind of diorama that you're making has to get tilted in order to do emotional justice to the, to the thing. Now I would, I go one step further and say, I don't, I don't feel like, um, some people do this, but I'm not a subscriber to the idea that the job of the fiction writer is to m mimic an actual emotion he's felt. In other words, I don't think my job is to feel something and then make you feel that exact thing. I have doubts that that's even possible. So my, my model is a little bit more ambiguous to say, I, I want you to come into my story and I want something to happen to you. Uh, that's not random. And maybe I don't know what it is. I certainly don't know what it is when, when I'm starting to write, but by, um, certain, <laughs> certain mysterious methods. I, I think I can make a, a box that when you go into it, you're going to come out kind of energized. Uh, and, um, maybe for me, that's actually good enough. That's, I mean, if I was telling the complete truth, that's why I'd stop. I make a black box that I made with a lot of care and obsessive energy and joy and all that. And then you go into it and when you come out, you're like, shit, wow. You know, almost like a, like a roller coaster is, is one useful model to me, you know? And so that, that way you don't really charge it with a bunch of intentionality. You just want the ride to be intense. Uh, now that somehow does produce, I think a, um, the feeling of some kind of moral charge or some kind of thematic, uh, resonance. But I, my approach is to not worry about that. Just make it a wild ride and all that stuff will happen naturally. Right. And so now, now when you're sending these stories out to places like the New Yorker, did you ever get pushback on that where people said like, what is this is weird or were people generally? Oh yeah. Uh, no, I got a lot. I mean, the, the biggest pushback was just, you know, rejections. But I think, um, as I remember the, uh, one of the things that I got that used to get was these things were like, this is really compelling and moving and we couldn't put it down, but we're not sure that it's a story. And you're like, well, <laughs> you know, that sounds like a story. Uh, but actually, you know, I'll tell you the truth. When I hit my stride a little bit and I, and I made that, I knocked on that wall I was talking about, people started responding almost right away. And the New Yorker did. And, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, I kind of liked the idea of being misunderstood, but I wasn't actually, you know, I was misunderstood when I was writing the imitation Hemingway shit that had no power. But once I got into this mode, um, I think, you know, I had a real, when I was a kid, I had a real, real love affair with pop culture. I mean, TV, radio, everything. And I think that somehow, t it, it makes a kind of a saccharine quality, or not saccharine, not quite right, but a kind of a sweet quality or a, or a, a enjoyable quality that masks a lot of the sci-fi and the darkness. And I think people kind of responded to that pretty well. I mean, I got a couple letters that said, when we first read this, we were like, what is this? Uh, which is good, you know. 
But mostly, I think since I, I have, I think I had an unusual experience for a writer, which is when I, when this, when the switch flipped for me, and I felt really happy with what I was doing and really in control of it and kind of, you know, uh, in relation to it, the, the world also kind of turned at the same moment, which is kind of nice. Right. And so, you know, you know, I mentioned that this is a show for science fiction fans. So I'm just curious from your perspective, which of your stories do you think would have would appeal most to science fiction fans? Well, there's there's one called Escape from Spiderhead, which is in my last book, my most recent book called Tenth of December. And that one is definitely uh, weird and has, you know, maybe more than some, it kind of does what sci-fi is supposed to do, which is take on some technological thing and kind of deconstruct it. I mean, usually I feel like the sci-fi elements of the futuristic is not, it's not really, I don't actually care that much about science or about the future. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have any sense of, of being able to predict it or anything, but it's just, those elements are ways of sort of energizing the surface. You know, uh, if, if you have, as I do a tendency to be a kind of plotting literal realist, then, you know, putting in some weird sci-fi element is a way of keeping yourself honest. You, you know, if you have a, I don't know, like a, you know, a sexual, a sexual robot in your story, you, 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 you're going to be hard pressed to lapse back into Hemingway as fiction, <laughs> or if you do, it's going to be pretty funny, you know? So it's almost like just a, a way of, uh, you know, if you, if, if you had a little buzzer in your pants and every time you got full of shit, it would give you a shock, then that would be good. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, <laughs> get full of shit. So I think the, the sci-fi elements are for me are just a way of saying you, this has got to be fresher than you, your natural tendency might make it, you know? Uh, so that, I think that one, and then, um, there's one, actually there was, there, there was another one in that same book called, uh, my chivalric fiasco. And it's just, a the, the, the shtick is that there's a, uh, a drug we've, the, the culture has, a, has made a bunch of boutique drugs that can actually alter your speech habits. So it can make you more articulate, less articulate. And in this story, there's a thing called nightlife, K N I G T L Y F E trademark that, uh, makes you speak an elaborate sort of Renaissance diction. And, uh, that, you know, that was a lot of fun. And, and, uh, I'm kind of into that idea recently of, of the, the tailoring of the brain. That seems to me like something really that we're going to be able to do. And it's going to open up incredible moral, you know, conundrums. If, if I can, if I can take a pill that makes me think exactly like you, for example, what is, you know, what does that do to us? Or if I could take a pill that made me incredibly compassionate and loving, what would that do to, uh, you know, or, or take a pill that made me uh, a great guitar player? What, what does that do? You know, that, that's kind of an old trope, but I think if you injected that with some comedy, it could be, could be fun. Well, right. And so the, the story you mentioned, Escape from Spiderhead kind of deals with those mood altering drugs, really high, highly sophisticated mood altering drugs as well. And right. you mentioned that you worked right. at a pharmaceutical company. Did that um, influence those stories at all? Um, only in the, the, the strangeness of the, um, the corporate tone, given what we were doing. So this was a place that was a real old school uh, facility. So those of us who were in the regulatory division, like the tech writers were upstairs. It was kind of a horseshoe shaped building. Uh, with a really pretty garden and fountain in the middle. And in the basement was the whole, you know, the whole horseshoe shape was uh, where the animals were tested. They tested them right in the same building. So there was a shortcut you could take to go from my office down to the parking lot and you went through the labs. And uh, so, you know, upstairs, it's just like your, it's like the office, you know, completely corporate cubicle environment. And then you drop down and, you, you know, there was these, I remember walking by a room and there was like 15 beagles hanging up in these slings. They were just like almost like in a standing posture with slings and they kind of tracked me as I went by, you know, and, and I think what I heard was that they did that because they were going to be experimenting on them the next day and they wanted, they wanted them to not be running around and elevating their heart rates, you know? So it was such a weird thing to be, uh, I was a young father, ecstatically happy with, you know, and I had a family and it was just like the most love you could ever imagine up to that point in my life. And then to, I did a good day's work and I earned my living and then come downstairs past that and go, Oh, wait a minute. You know? Uh, and then also we had in the, um, in the cafeteria, it was everybody in the building ate there. And there were these, uh, guys who would come in these huge guys in white suits and they were called the monkey wranglers. So we had some kind of monkeys in there that these guys, and, and what I heard was that the, uh, when you wanted to wrangle a monkey, you, you had them in a cage you open the cage and of course the monkey was trying to get out. So these guys literally would be like defensive ends. They tackle these monkeys and subdue them, you know, and then they would be 
on break, <laughs> you know, it was a couple tables away. So it was a really kind of bizarre combination of this brutality of that industry uh, and then the kind of just benign corporate thing. And the, the one other kicker was that, you know, I was working on this drug uh, for on and off for the whole time I was there. And it was a kind of an antiretroviral. So it was like to, to, to fight the cold. And it was just some tiny tweak away from one that was already on the market that, you know, the idea was to demonstrate some percentage more efficacy. So doctors would take that, but it wasn't vastly different. And we spent so much time on that and so many animals were thrown under the bus, you know, and I got to see them because I was rewriting the reports and uh, that was weird, you know, to see this is not the scenario whereby animals die so that humans may live. It was animals die so that these guys could get a tiny bit more market share for it drug that might somewhat mitigate the effects of the common cold, you know? So that was kind of a, and you know, I guess also that idea of being in the belly of the beast, you know, being a participant in that, not feeling like a bad person, but, uh, and, and surrounded by really nice people who were friendly and, 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 it, and we would joke about these things, you know? So somehow that, that was a pretty interesting skill model for the whole world in terms of the, the, you know, the uneasy relation between good and evil and, and, uh, and also the pressure of affluence. I mean, we had a little kid at home and no money. So, you know, there I was with my little tie. <laughs> well, right. And, and speaking of uh, lack of affluence, there's another story in there called The Semplica Girl Diaries that just yeah. conveys this unbelievably palpable sense of the dread of not having enough money. Yes. Well, that's from life, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, we've never been, you know, I'm a very lucky person, but there were you know, definitely in, in, in several times in my life, that place where you just, you know, get to the cliff and you like Terry Eagleman says, you know, capitalism plunders the sensuality of the body. And you get to that place where you're not poor, but you can feel the maw, you know, that the maw would be happy to receive you if you, if you don't get it together. And uh, I, I mean, to me, that's kind of the, like that high, that ten, the tinnitus of capitalism, you know, that high pitched noise, like, you, you know, watch it, watch it, watch it. Uh, that's meaningful to me. And I've, you know, I've been stung by that at different times in my life and, and, uh, humiliated by it actually, or maybe humiliated light, you know, I like to eat, but, uh, so yeah, so I think that's pretty, that's pretty rich stuff for fiction, you know, to say, uh, the culture has a very, very low tolerance for fucking up. It, it doesn't say it. It doesn't like it say it. It's like a kind of a really, uh, you know, stoic teacher you know, with a, with a baseball bat and it doesn't say much. And then when you step out of line, you get a crack on the back of the head. And I think that's kind of what our culture is. And it's not sporting to say so, uh, somehow since the eighties, you know, nobody wants to, to be a bleeding heart, uh, advocate for the, for the working poor, but, but that's, uh, you know, that's been my experience. Well, right. And so, so the premise of this story is that it's become fashionable for people in the near future to have these sort of grotesque technological displays in their backyards as a status symbol. And yeah. one thing that I think the story does really well is it conveys this, like you say, this, this sort of reality of capitalism that so many of the things, so many of the material things that we want to acquire, we don't want to acquire because we necessarily want or need that thing, but because we don't want to be thought poorly of by other people. Exactly. And if yeah. we could just, you know, yeah. sort of like, if people would just like stop judging other people, by what by their possessions, uh, we could kind of save everyone a lot of money and spend our time. Yeah, better. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I remember that feeling of of totally not buying into it. You know, no, I don't believe this, but you have your kids there, and you don't want them to suffer from being that kid. You know, now that's a big moral crossover there because I think in times past, either it wasn't that big of a deal, or people would say right out, right out. You know, no, it's I, I'm not going to be judged for that. But I think things have slipped a little bit now, and. Um, you know, so and then the other thing about that story that I really loved was, uh, you know, the first order understanding of that story as you're writing it would be, well, OK, this guy who has these these lawn displays, which are actually of, of third world women who've consented to be hung up in the backyard, essentially, that that guy must be a, a terrible person. Uh, and I thought, well, it's more interesting if he's not actually it's, it's more interesting if he's a good guy. And he's maybe a little bit obviously confused, but so is the rest of the culture. And his attention throughout is on his kids. You know, he wants his kids to uh, not be squashed by their by their their poverty. Uh, so that was fun, you know, to try to have a, a a good person that I think the reader comes to kind of like in a position of doing something that 
we step back and see is completely morally untenable. And then to complicate it one more step by having the girls themselves who are in the yard actually be okay with it. You know, in other words, this is sort of like, a, you know, a kind of a, a better choice for them than what they left behind. So I love that, you know, when a story gets into a realm where it's not really simply uh, producing a, a simple moral outcome, but it's making confusion, uh, you know, earned ambiguous confusion. I think that's pretty cool. You know, when, when the reader leaves it going, yeah, huh, I'm feeling, what do you want me to, you know, is A true or B true? And the story goes, yes. You know, that, <laughs> that I think is almost the highest. It's a Chekhovian, you know, Chekhov was really, really wonderful at that. But, you know, the funny thing about that story, and this is, you know, when we talk about stories this way, there's a, there's a tendency to uh, kind of assume intent on the writer's part, but that whole thing, that story, which I ended up having to work on for 14 years before I could get it, uh, came just out of a weird dream that I had. And the dream was just that I, you know, went to the window of my house and out in our backyard, there was this display. And especially it was the, in the dream, the person that I was, wasn't appalled by it, but was so happy because he'd finally managed to get that for his kids. So that was like, yes, you know, to just say, okay, well, I, I'm going to take some time to try to make sense of that. And it, it turned, it turned out to be 14 years. Or <laughs> the greatest, but, but, you know, these things, I think really um, the way we talk about art and literature sometimes makes it seem as if the, you know, the writer's job is to know and then execute. And my experience has been more that you, you know, you start for, you drive into something for reasons you can't quite figure out. And then you hope to find power kind of through your confusion, you know, as you're, Faulkner used to talk about that. Sometimes he'd just see an image and he'd try to just take that image apart and understand all the contributing factors and the results of it. Um, so I think part, you know, the beautiful thing about art is that you really are uh, basically every day in a state of not knowing what you're doing. You're, you're kind of trying to uh, deactivate your more conceptual knowledge. Uh, so that means, you know, people who do a lot of art, they know that there's, there's a mode in which the brain works uh, that's it, and it's a very powerful mode. Uh, it, it's much less based on certainty and deduction and uh, intentionality, and more on some other X factor that's kind of hard to talk about. But it's real, you know. It's it's reproducible. Like and and for me, uh, that gets enacted through a, like a real obsessive iterative vision process, which I think you know I'm, it's familiar to me from science. I mean, you know, when you do an experiment, you're basically uh, trying to take your hands off the wheel in terms of rooting for a certain outcome. You're just really trying to see the data, which is kind of similar, I think. Well, now, so with that story, were you making slow, steady progress for 14 years or was it kind of half finished for 13 years and you had some big breakthrough and were able to finish it? It was, I, as I remember it, it was, and this is a pattern I've been active before. I got to a certain point with a lot quickly, you know, with a lot of fun and then the story kind of locked up on me a little bit. And often, so I was like running into, it's like running into a wall day after day, you know, for and on and off for, for those years. Because, it, and I, I think the, um, what will happen is a story will proceed on its initial energy pretty well. And then there's a, there's an Einstein quote. He said, uh, uh, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So I think what happens is your original conception wears out or, or it, it, the story feels like, God, I, I don't want to be that which you thought I was going to be at the beginning. I want to be something bigger. So there's a period of kind of like almost, uh, you know, you, you get to the base of the castle and you march in place for a while and you run into the wall and come back. So on that one, I think it was just a matter of trying to figure out. Um, uh, well, I mean, usually it's just that you get to one stopping place. You're happy with everything behind you. And as you create new scenes, they keep sucking. It, they either repeat beats from before or they don't go anywhere. And that tells you that something in that text behind you is off, you know? So that's really not joyful work. It's kind of like, almost like when you, you wire something and then you, and it's not working, you have to go through each connection, you know, with a meter. Uh, and then at some point there's just a breakthrough, you know, and, and, uh, it's not really, well, a lot, a lot, I don't remember on that story, the details of that really, but a lot of times the, the, uh, it's kind of cool because the thing that's locking you up, uh, you, you know, there's some, there's some technical problem with the story. There's some, something that doesn't make sense. And the solution is often just to literally drop that thing into the text. So for example, I had a story called Silk, which was written the same way. I got locked up for about three years. And, and in the story, there's a woman who a very passive woman whose life is completely shitty. She dies. And, um, 
I, I, I won't give it away, but, but I, I was locked there for a long time. She, she died. There's a funny, sad funeral and there we are. And, um, just locked up forever, you know, and I couldn't figure out why. And it tried all these different versions of it. And then finally, I'll just give you a hint. I, I was in the shower and I thought, you know, that woman is the most interesting thing in the story, but you killed her off. So, you know, she's got to come back. And I had tried to bring her quote unquote back through dreams and through flashbacks. And I'm like, and as I thought that, you know, she's got to come back. Some part of my mind just blurted out from the dead. <laughs> and I was like, Oh God. And I, you know, I was a big fan of the twilight zone and night gallery and tales of the clip and all that. So, so the way to do that was completely obvious to me. And then from there, I went really quickly, but I was stuck there for about three years. And the subconscious finally said, okay, you know, she has to come back, meaning structurally. And then, you know, you just drop that into the story and then it, there you go. You know, so it's, in, it's interesting, it's interesting, but at the time it's not at the time it's, you feel like you're a hack, you know, and you, you, uh, you know, you have, I have students. How can I not know how to finish the story? <laughs> But, you know, but I think part of it is that, that finishing stories is uh, it, it's a it's a whole body, whole mind kind of thing, and and the story is really weird. It it it, it always wants to question your assumptions about it. You know, it's almost like a uh, somebody that you're dating who is constantly you know interrogating you and kind of roughing you up a little bit, and thereby making you making you better. Well, I mean, there's a thing like that, too, in Escape from Spiderhead, where it starts out as a sort of dystopian science fiction story and is turned by the end into a kind of ghost story, which is a pretty unusual move in, in science yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I don't, I guess I, you know, kind of feel like you're you're on a long trip and you, you're trying not to bore your passenger. So, uh, to you know, for me, if I, if I keep my mind on that part of it, that I'm I'm compelling you to keep reading by some, you know, some interest and that I, and then I actually have some ability to intuit what you, where you are in the reading. Now that's not hundred percent true, but, but if the assumption is workable, so I'm kind of looking over at you saying, uh, okay, um, is he still with me? And then you're also looking at the story to see what it needs. So like in that one, I got to the place where he had died and it just felt like there were still some bowling pins up in the air, you know, in other words, the story, there's the surface act kind of a story. And then there's the kind of understory and they have to end at about the same time. The understory is really the important one. So in that one, the understory was kind of about his, uh, you know, he, he, he killed somebody when he was young and he was suffering with that and trying to get in relation to that. And that hadn't, that hadn't, that bowling pin hadn't landed by the time he had physically died. So in a way, the story is saying, well, you know, you've got to find a way for this guy to keep thinking. And then again, there's tropes present like, oh, ghosts, ghosts think, you know. So it's inter it's an interesting thing for me. It's it's very much not about planning in advance. And so it's about having the kind of this root confidence that if you uh, revise a lot and uh, admit all possibilities, even to the very last minute, you know, you, you can surprise yourself. And that's really the goal is to for the story to you know, to write itself beyond what you could have imagined because, you know, any of us who sat around, you know, sketching out story ideas know that if you know too much about it, it's dead. It's DOA. You know, uh, this guy, Gerald Stern said, if you start to write a poem about two dollars fucking and you write a poem about two dollars fucking, then you wrote a poem about two dollars fucking, you know? So, so the trick is to somehow think, you know, what you're doing, but then we be willing to have that, that understanding overturned, which is, you know, fun <laughs> <laughs> well well right and so speaking of ghost stories i think that brings us to your new novel lincoln and the bardo and i would imagine for like 30 years people have been constantly bugging you when you're going to write a novel right so uh what, have, what made this yeah. uh finally happen um really i i was totally okay with not i really love stories and i and i'm you know i feel like almost everything i want to say i can say in them so i so when the last book came out stories and did pretty well i was like all right good I'm, you know i have no reason to feel discontent but this um idea for this book had had been around for about 20 years and i heard a story uh during the clinton administration that uh lincoln had been so grief-stricken when his 11 year old son died that he was reported to have gone into the crypt on several occasions so that just i mean, when i heard it i was like oh, kind of blown away you know as a, as a just as a young father and also as somebody who was uh, aware that Clinton was kind of trapped in the white house. This is during the Lewinsky scandal. So it just, it was just one of those things that really stuck with me. But, you know, I, I had a, a writing teacher one time tell me that 
there are, there are things you write and there are things you think about writing. And to know the difference is going to save you years of time, you know. So I kind of thought for many years that this is something that I, sure, I'd like to write it, but it's not really doable for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, so I just kept pushing it away. And then um, finally, after the 10th of December was done, it was about to come out. I just was like, you know, man, you're 50, whatever I was, 54. Uh, you've had a good run. This thing has been bugging you for years. And the reason you think you can't write it is because it's too hard. You know, it's going to take too much emotional earnestness. Uh, why, why would you say no to that? That's cowardly, you know, to get to that point in your career and go, well, I better just keep repeating myself so I don't make any mistakes. So I just kind of gave me a little contract for myself that I was going to try it uh, in that three or four months before the book came out and see if it, if it caught fire for me. And it really did, you know, and I, by the, by the time I went on tour for that book, I was like, well, this might be the biggest mistake in my life, but I, I think I'm onto something here and I'm having so much fun. And I, I have a friend who's a writer and I, about that time I wrote to him and I said, man, I'm writing something that is going to be the best thing you ever wrote or a real career ender. And he goes, well, don't forget it. That could be the same thing. <laughs> it could be both, you know, but yeah, so mostly, I mean, it was just a, I, I was, and also one of the aesthetic things I tried to apply during it was just to kind of keep it on a short leash and uh, try to make it a story failing that, try to make it a novella. Uh, don't let it kind of get full of itself and, and blow it up too much, you know? So that was part of what informed the writing of it was me trying to saying, all right, look, we've got three years to finish. You know, I'm going to give you three years, four years. Uh, don't, don't, you know, don't become a, a 30 year fiasco and you know, <laughs> like that. So, but mo- mostly just to try to keep growing, you know, the, what I found is I have a pretty, pretty small little box of talent that I've been working out of all these years. And, so one of the kind of later career things you have to do is find ways to, uh, you know, f- to, to maybe turn that box inside out, or, or I don't know what the metaphor would be, but you you either uh, start repeating yourself, which we a lot of artists do, or you find some way to get out on the edge a little bit, and this seemed like a, a good chance to you know to do that, and so it was great great adventure. Well, right, and so I mentioned that the title is Lincoln in the Bardo. So what is a Bardo? Well, Bardo is a, it's a Tibetan word that, that literally just means transitional state. And in the Tibetan epistemology, there's, I think, six Bardos. And like we're in one right now, we're in the Bardo that occurs between birth and death. And so the Bardo in the title kind of has a double meaning. One is that um, Lincoln's son has just died, and he's in the Bardo that goes between uh, death and whatever is next, which in Tibetan would be the Buddha. So he's in that kind of uncertain state where he's de- just dead and a little disoriented and then also Lincoln himself is in transition because he's uh you know he, he's uh finding out that the war is going to be just a bloodbath and he's in charge of it and he's also screwing it up so he's got to somehow um ex- you know sort of accept that so it's kind of a double meaning but the but the Bardo you know there's a if you the real Bardo or the you know the, the uh, actual mm, kind of academic Bardo is described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, mine is different. Mine is, is not literally that, that, that one only, I think the person only experienced it for 49 days and in the real Bardo, basically, um, if you could see it possibly, I think my understanding as a kind of an extended hallucination that the mind experiences after death in which one's habits and epistemology and symbolic system get supersized. So that's why heaven and hell is, I mean, some people talk about having terrifying visions in that state. Some people have beautiful visions. Uh, mine is different because when uh, the, the, the kind of conceit is that when the person is there, there's a bunch of other people. It's, it's a ghost world, basically. Every you know, Some people who were buried in that cemetery and were discontent are still lingering around because they can't quite get it through their heads that they're dead. Or they're so unhappy to have their have had their life discontinued that they just can't deal with it. They can't, you know. So Willie kind of has interactions with all of those beings. But I wanted to call it Bardo just so that it didn't feel it's not really purgatory and they're not really ghosts as we would think of ghosts. So to me, the, the call it the Bardo was a way of reminding myself that I wanted to make that afterworld really weird and unpredictable and even a little bit, um, illogical at times, but you know, the logic, uh, the, the sort of morphology of the logic in that realm is not, is not flat or linear. It's, it's erratic. Well, so how about all the characters have been turned kind of into grotesque, caricatures of themselves is that from the tibetan book of the dead or is that something that you dreamt up i think it's 
uh, maybe from Dante a little bit and from, and from myself. I mean, the, the shtick is that when you, let's say that like, one of the guys is a, a printer who um, had married this much younger woman and she was kind of like not, not into him. And so he, in a very gentlemanly way, didn't uh, consummate the marriage. So they, and then, so then just before his death, she had a change of heart and the next night they were going to, they were going to actually consummate their marriage. So he's very excited about this. So when he, but then that day at work, he gets killed. So his thing is his, I guess you would say his psychological state, which is arousal, you know, and uh, uh, he just has a big heart on basically and is naked. And so, so I guess the idea is that one's uh, well, as is true in real life, you know, your mental habits produce a physicality, you know, like remember that in um, what's it called? The, Miracle on 34th Street, that really neurotic psychologist is really pulling at his eyebrows, you know. So this is a, sort of an exaggeration of that. So so whatever um, the person brought to that and, and sort of has on his mind or her mind can sometimes have a, a physical manifestation that presumably they're, they're producing by their own neuroses. Right. And so in this book, too, you include a lot of kind of primary source material, a lot of excerpts from different journals and things like that. Did you? Yeah. I, so I assume you did a lot of research, right? Did any of the stuff, I guess, particularly about Lincoln, surprise you that you were discovering in that process? Yeah, I mean, what I did was, you know, it was about a four-year uh, project, and so I would write for until I felt like myself getting a little dull, and then I just read, kind of almost like hobbyist research. I wasn't, you know, uh, and I didn't do any research before I started. So if I felt I needed X, I'd go find it. Um, I think the thing that that's that surprised me most is that he was um, just, you know, beat down by things. I mean, he was very kind of a sad, probably depressed guy anyway, who would you know cheer himself up with these jokes and stuff. And but also really kind. He was always described as being kind. And when you see his his sort of managerial style, he was very um, I don't know what you call it, but he but he would he seemed to always want to have a good result. And he was willing to assume any role to get the good results. So if he had to be a little browbeaten by somebody, fine. If he had to give credit to somebody else, fine. Uh, sometimes somebody would come in with a tiresome complaint and he would just destabilize the situation with a kind of off-color joke. Or he'd sort of uh, convert the energy of a moment by making a kind of almost like a Zen colon, you know. He'd say. So uh, the sadness and the, and the kindness were, were things that I kind of, you know, you kind of know about it in a iconic way. But when you actually look at the consistency with which people describe them as sad and kind, and then kind of thinking about how those two virtues, which we don't really want to be, I don't want to be sad. I want to be kind, but I don't want to be wimpy. You know, I don't want to be, uh, but in him, those, those things became an incredible power source. You know, his, his, uh, when you read about him in those five years of the war, you kind of get this sense of someone's ego vanishing and something else rising in its place. And I think it's, you know, what we call empathy or compassion, but, but with a real, you know, kind of raggedy ass streak of, of, uh, I mean, while he's learning to be empathetic, he's leading this war that tens of thousands of guys a day are dying. And he's also kind of mismanaging it. And so more guys are dying and he can't get his generals to pay attention and, um, really an intensely, combative uh, environment. But nonetheless, while he was going through that, he, he somehow was able to keep his eye on, uh, on the star, you know, uh, or maybe he would, he just kept looking upward. So when, as he, as he worked through all this, this stuff, especially with slavery, you, you see this really incredible intelligence, very syllogistic and rational, uh, almost like it always reminded me of somebody who was in a, a pitching sea, you know, drowning with an open wound but still managing to think logically and empathetically. So that was something. And then to come out of that into the current political environment was pretty interesting, you know, and see, you know, in Trump, so many uh, of the direct contradiction of those, you know, not sad, maybe sad, but not, not that kind, you know, not, not really concerned with the welfare of a bunch of other people, especially if they're not supporters and all that kind of thing. And uh, so it was, it was very inspiring to see that also to see how much linking was just, uh, criticized in his uh, tenure as president so much from so many quarters, from you know people in his party and other parties, uh, smart people, dumb people, rich people, poor people. They, they were just heaping it on him, you know, all the time. So for me, someone, and I'm fairly thin-skinned, so to think, wow, how could you, you know, how can you function 
in the face of that much um, derision. And it's just a kind of a really steady internal quality that he must have had. And then his son died, you know, right in the middle of that, his, his beloved son died unexpectedly. And he was sort of, you know, there was some sense that that Lincoln and his wife were to blame because they had this big party before, as Willie, when Willie was already sick. So they must have been carrying that around. And, you know, it's tough. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Trump because I had exactly the same thought as I was reading this, that he's almost like the anti-Lincoln. And yes. do you think that – is it possible to imagine that in 150 years, people will be writing Trump in the Bardo, wondering what Trump – what was going – it's it's hard to imagine people being that interested in what was going on in his head because he seems to have so little emotional depth. Yeah, Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because um... – yeah, you never know. You know, I mean, you, you, I, there was a time in the 80s when I would have laughed at the idea that they would name an airport after Reagan. You know, <laughs> so you never know. But and and also, you know, the, the scary thing is with the Trump movement, if if those ideas, you know, harden into ethos in the next generation, which they could, then we're going to be talking about a completely different country in which he might, you know, people might say, oh, he really turned the tide. You know, uh, the, the thing that I that I think is uh well, one obvious thing is that Lincoln was a, a passionate student of the American Constitution and of the American project. He had, I mean, he really, there's a really beautiful thing he said when he was young. That basically, I just want to do one thing for which I'm remembered. But it was always in the spirit of, of the country, you know. And um, he had this really beautiful kind of lyrical, romantic idea of what the what America was. Uh, I, I don't get the sense that Trump has really thought about it that much, you know. So he's inheriting this incredible responsibility and tradition, but doesn't seem to really give a shit about what came before. Um, he's sort of a nation unto himself. And uh, also the, the thing that kills me is the way that if someone opposes him, his first reflex is to strike out. With Lincoln, you know, I'm sure it hurt him just as much to hear these things. But somehow in that second of absorbing the, uh, the complaint, he did something else. He did a little move that I imagine as being, who knows, but it, from his actions, it seems like he would take the hit, take the pain, and then redirect his mind and say, well, what can I get from this? You know, how can I learn from this? Is there any validity to the complaint? Is there any pain at the base of the complaint? Uh, can I address the validity or the pain? Can I, in other words, can I take the message without killing the messenger? Uh, and, you know, we all, I mean, I think we all try to have that that capacity in our real life. But Trump in this, as this kind of supersized celebrity made a kind of a running national joke of that kind of haughty, uh, thin skinned snappish quality when he was on TV. And then somehow it just mind blowing that, that we, you know, we accepted that as a leadership trait that that was really a disappointment. Well, I mean, it's been about 10 years since your essay collection, the brain dead megaphone, and I was wondering if you were trying to follow up these days, would you call it the brain debtor megaphone? Because <laughs> yeah. things have just gotten so dumb. And I, I guess I, I'm curious, do you think that does Trump represent kind of the pendulum swinging as far as it's going to go for the colonization of uh, American life by vacuous celebrity culture? Or do you think this is just the first step in a progression where we're going to have President Kardashian and it's just going to like keep going in that direction? I think we're, I mean, the honest answer is I think we're in uncharted territory because it was sort of unimaginable a year ago that we'd be here now. And, you know, the thing that I learned, I I did some reporting for the New Yorker and and went to these Trump rallies and uh, I was just really stunned by uh, the fact that there was this palpable, huge movement that made no sense to me. And I'm not saying that to discredit it. I'm saying to discredit myself. I didn't know uh, the... um, the number of people who felt rightly or wrongly that the culture had left them behind. And uh, so, you know, your first reaction is, wow, that's weird, you know, and then he wins and you're like, Oh, that's, that's on me that I didn't know. You know, I'm a writer and I I consider myself to be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of spanned a lot of classes in my life and I uh, blame, you know, uh, it's on me that I didn't understand that. So now I kind of feel a little bit like, I think a lot of people, I, I have, some loss of confidence in my ability to assess what's going on in the culture, uh, which means I'm really not so sure what will happen. I, I think it's, uh, it's spooky. And I, and I think, you know, this is sort of amateur uh, 
technological philosophy. But I, I, when I came back from that trip, I was, I really thought, you know, it's the polarization, the right versus left polarization, which actually doesn't have as much to do with real life as we think it's, it's media imposed. And if you follow the money, it's very profitable to be a, uh, a partisan network or website. And then the whole thing was sort of, uh, super sped up by, by social media. And I, you know, I noticed like when I, when you spend four years writing a novel, your mind is pretty, it's, it's doing weird things. It's, doing, it's, it's very intuitive. It's, you know, you're, you're working on your book and you're becoming open to mystery in a way, you know, the book will give you a little reward. You didn't see coming that you didn't ask for. Uh, you're, you have to be comfortable with unresolved problems and with ambiguity. Also in relation to your character, you tend to, excuse me, you, you tend to go from making a cartoon to making a fuller character by empathy, by, by, you know, you keep looking at that character kind of saying, do you want to tell me anything? So that whole mindset that we might call the artistic mindset is actually really powerful. And I would say, if you look at the different you know, manifestations of human mind, that's pretty high up. Just like when you're working on a scientific problem, same kind of thing. Well, then to come from that into covering Trump for the New Yorker, I I had to just sort of like wade into the actual political life of the moment. So watch a lot of cable TV, you know, uh, bury myself in social media. And I was really struck by the difference in those two modes. The second mode is, you know, everything's off the top of your head. It's a little bit almost always supercharged with aggression it's also got a lot of, uh, I mean, the stance of the person who's posting is basically, I already know, here you go, shut the fuck up. You know, it's, it's very much sure of itself and it's, it's skimming the surface of its mind and it's firing back. And its purpose actually is not very often to persuade. And this is true for left or right. You know, when I'm, when I'm posting at you, I'm, I'm both performing and lecturing, you know, uh, so that's okay. It's fun. Actually, it's really fun. And you learn a lot. But if you, if, when I look at the difference in those two minds, and then I look at how many people are engaging in art mind and how many people are engaging in, you know, social media mind, uh, I think it's really, even in the last year, I, I think future, future historians will say in this last year, it's radically affected the communication mode in the country, which then radically affects everything else. That's why, I mean, it's one reason everybody's so agitated, uh, it's one minute. It's one reason that the, the two sides are hardening so rigidly and, and that, you know, crosstalk actually isn't very productive. I, that, I mean, that's, I know that's a little bit of a generalization and an amateur generalization, but that was my feeling when I had the cool experience of going from one moment to the next, you know, I don't know if you, if you feel that too, but I hear a lot of people talking about that, like they need a break from social media, uh, but they don't want to because they feel like they're then putting their head in the sand and so on. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I could certainly use a break from social media, but at the same, it's. I actually really wish that they could um, that they would set up Facebook so you could um, sort of tag your own posts as political, and then you could mm-hmm. people could decide whether they wanted the personal things like here's what I did this weekend, here's a trip I took, whatever, or <laughs> yeah. the political posts. Because there are people in my network where I don't want to see their political posts, and more importantly, I don't want them seeing my political posts. Yeah. I just want to know what they yeah. did that weekend. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess the other the counter argument, it's kind of it kind of jarring and maybe in a good way to see that not everybody. I mean, the the, uh, the kind of what would you call it? Like the uh, the mixed community of, say, Facebook is maybe one of the things that uh, does some kind of work on the divide, because you do every so often you go, you know, cousin Jake, what? You know, what do you mean by that? Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, again, I, I think, you know, I feel like most things I engage on two levels. One is uh, a kind of a this this level like i i am worried about social media and i can point out all the things that are dangerous about it and then the other one is a little more long range and and novelistic really which is to say oh that's interesting that people are doing that you know that's cool uh you know anything that we do has cause and effect and uh i would say the novelistic stance is to kind of go oh huh you know like there was a quote uh i'm probably getting this wrong but it's something like uh you know man is marvelously well-made and enthusiastically lives the life that is being lived, you know? So that attitude, which is like, Oh yeah, social media is fucking us up. That's interesting. You know, <laughs> or, you know, what I sometimes call on the other hand, thinking where you just say what you really feel and then just automatically supply the phrase on the other hand and then see what comes next. You know, uh, we've never been more divided on the other hand. And 
I don't know what that is, but it's kind of a good, it's mental, good mental hygiene to sort of, you know, challenge your own auto, auto conclusions. Yeah. Okay. So we're running pretty short on time here. And I did want to mention, speaking of celebrities, I guess this would be the positive side of celebrities, that there is a very <laughs> impressive roster of celebrities associated with the audiobook for this. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, there's a really amazing producer in LA named Kelly Gilday, works her in house. And we, uh, worked on the audiobook for 10th of December and had so much fun with it. And so she, uh, called me after she got the galley of the book and said, well, you know, what, what should we do with this? And I, you know, the book is basically hundreds of monologues of ghosts and historical sources and all this. And I just kind of like, you know, flinched at the idea of reading all those. I, I knew I couldn't do that many voices. I can do like two or three, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, a working class guy and a duck. That's about it. <laughs> but um, so I thought, you know, I wonder if we could do, could we do something where we get, you know, a number of different narrators for this. And uh, she was like, yeah, we could do that. And so before long, we had sort of, uh, hit on this goal of, of having a different voice for every every voice in the book, which she, using uh, a, a spreadsheet, figured out was 166. And so then uh, uh, I'm friends with Nick Offerman and David Sidaris, and they both agreed to do the two other main parts, and I do the third. And then everybody started working, and uh, and we got incredible actors to agree to it. And at the same time, Kelly was um, putting together a really made like a who's who of audiobook readers. And at the same time, I was going out and getting uh, family members and friends and people from Random House and um, two of my high school teachers that saved my life in high school are on there and my sisters, my kids. Uh, and so then, you know, there was one day where she called and said, we actually got 166 and um, she used 11 different studios across the country, Skyping in and out and recording. Uh, so it was a, an incredible you know, process and no, nobody was ever in this, the same room. So when I did my part, I would just go through the book and read all of my parts, even though some of them are basically like stage dialogue with two other actors. Uh, so, so this genius of an editor put it all together and, and uh, yeah, so it's done and it's pretty, it's, you know, I've been listening to it and it's really, I mean, it's, even though I wrote the book, it's kind <laughs> of like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's kind of cool. You know, the, the bad writing, notwithstanding, it's a pretty cool audio book. Yeah, and it's a record, right? For most, uh, audiobook narrators ever? I think so. They, they actually applied for the Guinness Book of World Records in that category. So I guess we'll find out if it is or not. It, it'd be hard to imagine more because it, the book is, is weird in that way. It's got the voices. And then the fact that we were, we didn't double anybody, uh, I think it's pretty, pretty cool. So it was, you know, it was actually a really nice way to kind of um, almost like stair step out of the book itself. I loved writing this book so much and I was so into it at that time period and, and, uh, you know, then almost with regret, I was like, yeah, I think it's, that's it. I think that's done. If I keep working on it, I'm going to mess it up and really missed it. So this was a nice way working with Kelly to kind of just gently revisit some of the stuff in the book. And, you know, that process of saying, well, who would be good for this character? And then we draw a few names and find out we actually got the, you know, the first person. And it was really a nice uh, kind of a, co a collaborative kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So then just the last thing I want to ask you is there are just a couple of things I've heard about Lincoln over the years that I've never researched, but I figure, you know, while I have you here, maybe uh, you've, you, you know, enough about this. So I've heard that Lincoln, yeah, he, could we think dunk. he could definitely, he could dunk. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I've seen the documentary, so I, I, I yeah, yeah. know that one. <laughs> um, but I've heard that he had a high squeaky voice. And then there are people who say that he was gay and that he was an atheist. And I'm just wondering if in your research for this book, if you formed any opinions about any of that stuff. I can answer those. He had he had what's called, a, they would always say a thin, reedy voice. So I, I would imagine like, a, well, well, actually, they did a pretty good version of it back in the day when they had him in the Hall of Presidents at Disney World. It's a, kind of a high, reedy voice like that. And so he could talk to 10,000 people without a microphone with that with that pitch. And actually, you know, if you're interested, there's a, an amazing thing. Okay, so if I, I make up some of the facts wrong, but there was an actor who I believe was named Robert Massey, and he was a great theater actor in the early part of the 20th century. So there was a play called Something About Lincoln, Young Lincoln, I think, and Massey was Lincoln in the play. And then they made a film, uh, same title, and Massey's Lincoln. So Robert Lincoln, Lincoln's only surviving son, by this point was an old man. He saw the movie. And he, or maybe he saw the play, but he said, that guy sounds exactly like my father. So if you go to YouTube and, re, and I think it's Robert Massey, look him up, listen to him, 
we have Robert Lincoln's word that that's what Lincoln sounded like, which is pretty cool. Like one, one generation removed. Uh, was he gay? I don't think so. He, the, uh, that was kind of founded on this idea that he slept with other lawyers when they would travel on the circuit, but that was totally common. There, there is one weird thing there. He has a, um, there's a, an army officer that he befriends and he goes out of his way to see the guy and they sleep in this. I don't know if it's in the same bed or the, but the same room. Uh, but weighing against that is a lot of evidence that he was incredibly attracted to and attractive, uh, attracted to and attractive to women. And that he had this sort of high honor that he wouldn't actually, and since he was married, he wouldn't, he wouldn't engage in that. He didn't, you know, but women were very drawn to him actually, in spite of the fact that he was supposed to be ugly. So I, I think the jury's out on that, but I, I would kind of say no on that one. And what was the last one? Was he, was he, was he an uh, atheist? Um, depends how you define it. I, I think not. I think his, um, he wasn't a conventional Christian for sure. But one of the really beautiful things you see is that as he, you know, as these tens of thousands of people were being blown apart, uh, and as the war seemed to be a total stalemate that looked like it was going to stretch 20 years into the future, he did do this kind of turning towards, uh, what something. And his conclusion was something like, well, whatever runs this universe, if it wanted to stop this war, it could and it would. It seems that it doesn't want to stop it. So therefore, it must have some purpose. And, and, and he came to believe that the purpose was to, as he said, uh, I can't remember the phrase, but basically expiate the sin of the nation that was slavery through blood. So, uh, which, which is a kind of a, a mystical way of saying, which was literally true, which is the two sides in this were not going to compromise. They, they could have talked a million years and they wouldn't have broken through. There was too much money on the line. And so they just had to kill it out, you know? And so his understanding, I think was that he had to kind of, my understanding of his understanding, he had to kind of keep one eye on whatever that was, God or, or divinity or whatever, uh, and serve it in, in, in sort of running through, you might say, exhausting the karma of the country that had accrued. And that was with this war that was going to be really terribly destructive and out of control, you know? So I think he, I think he was spiritual. I don't know. He was traditionally Christian, but he was, uh, he was, very deeply spiritual guy who was in touch with whatever, you know, whatever we agreed God is that he was, he was very much in touch with it. So I, I wouldn't say atheist has that, that to me, it has a sound of like, I've decided that there was absolutely no God. He he was more like uh, sidling up to the idea of, of a God and trying to, by observation, figure out what its characteristics must, must be if it did exist. You know, almost a, and he's a very scientific guy. So I think that was part of his thing is since, whatever God might be is, you know, huge and vast and beyond our conception, then we could sort of scientifically watch what it does. And in his case, what, what it was doing in his mind was unraveling this crazy knot of slavery uh, through this incredibly bloody means. And, and I think he saw the hand of God in that somehow. Yeah. All right. So we are completely out of time. So just do you have any final thoughts or any other projects you want to no, mention I, or anything? I just enjoy it. I'm, I'm about to go on the road for, I think, 20, 20 cities in 22 days or something. So I'm just trying to kind of compose myself a little before that starts. But, but uh, it was great talking to you. Yeah. All right. So we've been speaking with George Saunders and this new book again, it's called Lincoln in the Bardo. So George, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great. Great, great conversation. I really, really relaxing and enjoyable. Thanks. <laughs> yep. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to George Saunders for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Michael DePlater, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And so I want to give special thank yous to Jason Bolton, PayPal patron number 121, who just increased his pledge amount to $10 per month, and to David Taylor, PayPal patron number 75, who writes, Thank you and yours for the amazing, exhausting, mind-bending, and inspired hour with James Glick, exhilarating and motivating. Upon finishing the episode, I acquired and watched, after years of dithering, the mesmerizing La Jetée. Astonishment and tears followed, with heartfelt thanks from Elizabeth, my better half of 35 years, and I. 
Seeing our beloved and frequently visited Paris in such devastating imagery brought upon us a sadness rivaling that, nearly, of today's Trump-slash-Bannon conflagration. Your hour with James Glick, our 30 minutes with La Jete, and the pleasure of listening again to your Power Armor A Love Story read by Norm Sherman, all of the above really, reminds us that time travel, while endlessly interesting, confirms only this. We do best measuring ourselves by our behavior and contributions in our timeline. Perhaps someone persuasive will make this case at the White House, and at frankly all branches of our government. Let's hope so, as we'd favor greatly avoiding the upcoming Trumpian wars predicted just days ago by the artist Maynard James Keenan. David, thanks so much to you and the Geek Sky crew. We are enthralled and devastated and emboldened and inspired by each episode. Please keep plowing this field in ours and every timeline. So big thanks again to David Taylor for that nice note and for continuing to support us on PayPal. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.